Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with experts to help navigate wellness and empower all of us to make feasible changes to a healthier life and healthier world. In today's conversation, we had the privilege to speak to Dr. Enrique Salmon, who feels indigenous cultural concepts of the natural world are only part of a complex and sophisticated understanding of landscapes and biocultural diversity. Dr. Salmon's recent studies have led him to seriously consider the connections between climate change and indigenous traditional foodways. Dr. Salmon has written a book focused on small-scale native farmers of the greater Southwest and their role in maintaining biocultural diversity. It is titled Eating the Landscape. He has also authored Iwigara, American Indian Ethnobotanical Traditions and Science. In our conversation, we talked about what an ethnobotanist does and the interrelation between plants and people, why it is so important that we connect back to the land and how the connection between human and plants can make us healthier. We also talk about what the best food system looks like, why beans can be used as medicine, and if we don't have access to local food, how we can find the healthiest food around. This is an important conversation, and Dr. Salmon is a wonderful storyteller. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Professor Salmon. Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast. We're so excited to talk to you today. That's great to be here with you. So before we get too far in depth, can you explain to our listeners what an ethnobotanist is? Well, essentially, ethnobotanists study the direct interrelationships between plants and people. That's a definition that one of my mentors put together in 1978. He published it in The Nature and Status of Ethnobotany, Richard I. Ford, and uh, from the University of Michigan. And that definition is still accurate today because uh, what we're really paying attention to is not just how people use plants. If you look at most books about native peoples and plant knowledge, it's kind of, they tell you the name of the tribe and the name of the plant and how the tribes use it. But there's so much more to that relationship than how we use a plant for you know, medicine or food or whatever it happens to be. And so the direct interrelationships is, is key to what ethnobotanists do. We're really trying to go deeper into how people, not just indigenous people, but anybody around the world relates to plants and the role it plays in our cultures and our identities and sometimes our spirituality. So why is it so important for us to really reconnect with the land, because I know that you were saying in all of your research that you've done around the world, um, all indigenous cultures have this connection and kinship with um, the earth and the land. And why is it so important for us to relearn that? Well, because we're not doing a good job right now of taking care of, of the natural systems around the world. Um, I think that's a big part because we've we've separated ourselves as human beings from nature. You know, look at the, the language we use, for example, just the idea of wild or wilderness. It implies that there is 
something out there that's separate from us as human beings, that we do not participate in those systems. And we have no place in there. If we do go into the wilderness, we're supposed to leave only footprints, for example. And we're not supposed to touch anything, maybe take pictures and that sort of thing. And that just perpetuates this idea that our actions and our practices as human beings don't have an impact on the natural world. When in reality, everything we do has an impact on natural systems. And if we could, as human beings, find ways to recognize our relationship to natural systems and then following that, recognize how our choices and our practices impact those systems and everything around us, then we might be better situated to decrease our negative impacts on it. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that sentiment. And I heard in one of your interviews um, on For the Wild podcast that you explained the misconception of the untouched landscape that the settlers viewed North America as when they landed here. But in reality, indigenous people had already been living sustainably with the land. And I think that speaks to what you were just describing. So do you mind expanding on this a little bit more and touching on what a kinship of plants and people would truly mean in today's modern age? Well, you know, when Europeans first arrived over here, officially 1492, um, they thought they were looking at a pristine landscape. And I think that they were just projecting these, these first explorers and then later, um, you know, the, the sort of philosophical and scientific minded people and explorers and so on onto the North American continent and South America as well. They wanted to see a pristine landscape. They wanted to ignore the reality that there were, you know, 15 to 20 million indigenous peoples living here already. Um, they had this, these Europeans, I think, figured that if they accepted the fact that there were native peoples here and they played a role in the ecosystems going on in North and South America, then they had to accept their narratives and they weren't ready to do that. And in reality, except for the hottest deserts, like maybe some of the lower elevations of Death Valley, and maybe the highest 14,000 foot peaks here in North America, and even higher down in South America. Native peoples treated these landscapes like a huge garden. We were constantly managing it, the systems. We were constantly um, pruning, coppicing, um, changing things, using the land, but for the most part in, a, you know, in sustainable ways. And of course, all of this use had this impact on the landscape, no matter what ecosystem we're talking about, what habitats we're looking at, native peoples played a role in how those ecosystems have functioned. And like, 
I look right here in California where um, land management here, you know, Gavin Newsom and so on is just getting ready to put across a bunch millions of dollars to finally start to manage the landscapes here in California to, in order to reduce, you know, catastrophic fires. Um, before Europeans showed up here in California, native peoples were constantly conducting what we call today prescribed burns. And as a result, we were also um, using the land. We were collecting basket weaving materials. We were collecting and wild crafting foods. We were hunting um, in the process of collecting acorns from the oak trees. They would be, the oak trees would be pruned. If we go to the Mojave Desert, they were constantly pruning the mesquite groves because though they're pruning, they actually would produce more mesquite pods or making mesquite flour. And then also producing more acorns um, for all the different dishes that Ohlone and Chumash and other native people would eat here. And so there was this constant sustainable use of the land. And when there were fires, they were lower level fires. And they weren't just catastrophic things that we see today. They rarely would get up into the canopies unlike what we see today of the forest. Um, and they actually did good because they would come in and decrease the competition for things like oaks that native peoples wanted to keep around. And they would actually produce conditions so that certain plants could actually propagate. You know, fire is required for some, a lot of plants to repropagate. Wild tobacco is one example. Lodgepole pine is another example. Um, and so I can just keep going on with all these examples of how, you know, this was treated like this big garden. It was never pristine, but it worked. In other words, humans have been a keystone species in ecosystems and, and around the world. And today, modern day um, ecologists are just starting to catch on to that idea. A buddy of mine and I presented this idea to the Ecological Society of America conference a few years ago. And there were, there were a few people who agreed with us, but most for the most part, you know, no one wanted to hear it, that, that humans didn't have to have a negative impact on ecosystems. We need to figure out ways to just, just raise, simply raise awareness. You know, and there's, there's television commercials, there's movies, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's you know, <laughs> producing the funding films about, you know, climate change and so on. But, um, you know, it's not reaching the mainstream media. And that's where, that's where the change needs to be. We need to, if we can start to um, elect political leaders that actually will continue to frame and reframe this conversation and these concepts, then maybe the general public might start to catch on. But nothing's going to happen as long as, you know, it's only a handful of us who are aware of what's going on. And unfortunately, humans, no matter where we are, tend to wait till the last minute 
to change the behavior. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we need to figure out a way to, to change behavior beforehand. That's going to take a big political sh- shift before that happens, unfortunately. And in the short term, um, we can just encourage anyone we can to figure out ways to just make themselves more aware of their local systems and the impact that they have on it. I think that's very inspiring, though, to know that humans play a role in maintaining the environment to a quote unquote pristine condition, because I feel like a lot of times when you hear the media talk about climate change, it's humans are doing this, degrading this. And it's like, well, hmm, (laughs) can humans do anything right in this environment? But knowing that we've been able to like indigenous people were already treating the United States or this land as a garden, it's, we can revert to some of that kinship again. Yeah, I agree. Um, the news is about uh, our impacts on, on natural systems. It's always negative, you know, and why, you know, why we need to find a way to present some, some uh, positive news about what the humans have been doing on landscapes there's you know there's some here and there but it needs to be the focus rather than the opposite you know here's what we're doing we've been destroying the planet and no one wants to hear that it doesn't inspire um innovation it doesn't inspire people to change their behavior and to think you know maybe i should buy that electric car instead of that gas guzzling truck you know um, you never know. That's you know, people. If people are inspired, we can do amazing things. Are there any innov- innovations that excite you, w- exactly. with regards to really just protecting our land again and getting back to getting back to the basics? Hmm. Well, you know, I like what is happening with. Um, there's this growing movement among indigenous peoples and indigenous minded peoples to decolonize our diets. And it sounds a little critical race theory sort of thing, you know, but what it really comes down to is a a rejection of the European-based approach to food and the way we gather, collect, and grow and produce our food. And, and replace that with, with systems that actually return nutrients to the soil when we grow our food, that decrease the harm that raising livestock does to the ecosystem and eating foods that actually benefits us um, both physically and and culturally. And that's what it comes down to when we talk about decolonizing our diets, decolonizing our food. And the, the side effect of all of that is that it creates a more sustainable food system for everybody and can play a role in decreasing CO2 and CFCs and you know, you know, global warming gases and so on. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I'm, I'm really excited about what's going on around there. 
because that does a lot of other things. You know, when people start to look into what their ancestors ate 500 years ago, for example, then it creates this in, uh, in an individual's mind, a connection to their lineage and ultimately a connection somewhere to a landscape. If it's not here in North America, connection to a landscape perhaps in Scotland or maybe you know somewhere in Ethiopia or who knows where. And that goes back to your other question. If, if people can find ways to, at least on the simplest level, connect their identity to a landscape, then that'll impact their behavior around natural systems. We're likewise very excited about the the movement that you were talking about. We're working on some um, projects with regenerative agriculture and hoping to move that forward because like you said, it can sequester carbon and it can make a more uh, sustainable system of growing food. And it also brings back nutrients, which leads me into my next question about uh, food is medicine. That's a terminology that we've been hearing a lot more nowadays in um, our healthcare field and the medical system. And in your book and your work, you truly lay out what this means, um, not just eating healthier, but using plants to heal. So do you mind sharing a couple of examples of how plants can be used as medicine? Well, you know, we have to um, first reconfigure, reframe this concept of medicine, you know, and if it's related to food, that the definition of medicine in English and in most Western languages is, is not really applicable to indigenous notions of, of wellness and of, of healing and so on. Um, if you were to take the definition of medicine in English and try to find a similar word in most indigenous language, you know, you, you'll be searching for, for quite a long time because it really doesn't exist. But to, you know, to answer your question, um, the first one that comes to mind is uh, beans. <laughs> Just any old beans, you know, pinto beans, those anasazi beans that have the little sort of curly stripes on the sides. They're black beans. Uh, you know, any kind of leguminous sort of plant um, uh, food are, is so good because um, in the uh, there's two main ingredients besides all the you know great fibers and other uh, nutrient values of beans, but in the holes of beans, for example, you find trace amounts of chromium, and chromium plays a very important role for reducing in our our bodies, especially in internal organs like the pancreas and so on, um, insulin resistance. And that decreases our, our vulnerability to um, adult onset type 2 diabetes. Just for, you know, simple foods like beans because of the, the presence of the, the chromium in the hulls. But also in the beans are these really amazing mucilages and these, these sugary sort of starches um, uh, called amylose. And... 
they play that plays a role in, in a couple of things. It amylose and mucilages and those other insoluble fiber, because amylose is also an insoluble fiber. It actually slows down our body's digestive process. And so unlike when you eat a big slice of pizza and then, you know, 30 to 45 minutes later, you get that prosprandial sort of drop in energy. Um, when you eat a food like beans, your energy level just slowly rises because your digestive process is slowing down. When a digestive process is slowing down, you're actually burning more, more energy. And amylose, for example, and those insoluble fibers, they actually don't get digested in our stomach and intestines. And so what happens is that they ferment in our bodies, but you know, maybe people might think that's a terrible thing. You know, something fermenting in your in your gut. Well, actually, it's creating a probiotic system inside our, our intestines and our stomach. And long story short, it actually um, our body actually processes the nutrients of any food that we eat, and it actually increases our immune system when we get that process going in our, in our intestines. And so in other words, beans are a, a form of preventive medicine. But then if, if someone is already um, suffering from adult onset type two diabetes, you can actually turn the whole process around. You can actually use food to get rid of the diabetes so you're not you know you're not uh, dependent on having to take insulin and so on and there's there's been several documented examples of indigenous people especially in um, latino people mexican americans as well turning to that decolonized sort of diet that i mentioned earlier and actually not having to um, take insulin anymore not having to go get dialysis and so on. And in the process, you know, people lose you know, a lot of weight um, because they're eating, all of a sudden eating, you know, 50 to 70 grams of fiber a day, um, as opposed to um, the typical American is lucky to get eight grams of fiber a day. So that's just one example, you know, just, you know, another one similar to that is wild rice. Okay, you go up to the Great Lakes region, the upper, upper area or part of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and you come into Ashnabi people, the Chippewa, Ojibwe, who still collect wild rice today. They go through the, the, the rice fields that are on the edge of lakes and ponds and slow moving streams with their canoes and their boats. And they're literally um, you know, knocking the tops of the, the rice plants with sticks so that the grains will fall into the boat. And then there's a process of, of you know, separating the chaff from the actual grain. And this is a staple food. And like, you know, similar to beans, it's, it's high in fiber, both soluble and insoluble. And it has important nutrients that actually um, increase our immune system. And another added benefit, it strengthens the the arteries and the and heart muscles. And so it actually makes our heart stronger, less susceptible to 
congestive heart failure and so on. It decreases um, LDL, the, the lousy cholesterol. So I thought I remember it. HDL <laughs> is the happy cholesterol. <laughs> LDL is the lousy cholesterol. And so, you know, it helps create, you know, raise the HDL, lower the LDL. Um, and it just tastes good. <laughs> Wild rice, this is a really good food. So again, another one of these sort of foods that are a preventive kind of medicine. And then um, when I think of preventive, you know, plants and preventive medicine, for example, can also be um, medicinal as well for suffering from something. I think of Roosevelt Elks. <laughs> and the reason why, because I'm, I'm an indigenous person and our knowledge is transferred and reproduced through story. And I was hiking the Lost Coast Wilderness up north of where I'm at up here, way up in Northern California. And just like it sounds, it's along the coast. And I was walking down into this ravine. It's really um, the, 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 um, the, the bushes and plants and trees are almost like a jungle in this area there in Northern California. And I was stepping across a small stream and the buddy I was hiking with told me to stop. And I, I froze you know, halfway across this little tiny stream. And he said, look up. And I looked up and about three feet away from my face was this big muzzle of a Roosevelt elk. Most of the body was behind all these bushes. All I saw was really just the mud, the, the, the nose, you know, the, and his mouth was full of stinging nettles. He was just chewing away on stinging nettles. And, and so I always remember that story when I think of stinging nettles and stinging nettles are, they're, they're kind of a pain because they literally sting you if you, if you collect them. But if you boil them, a little bit, the, the stingers disappear. So it's formic acid that's on the stingers that actually create the, the stinging sensation um, when you accidentally brush along the leaves. Um, but you can bake this really good drink out of it, mix it with ginger and lemon, um, throw some honey in there, and you have a really good... Um, systemic tonic that raises the immune system. It has some um, antibiotic properties and it actually increases digestion you know, for stuff you have stomach issues and so on. You can use the leaves as a poultice externally for you know, bruises and cuts and so on. Again, because the leaves are full of these really amazing flavonoids that um, have anti-inflammatory and antibacterial properties. Um, and so, you know, that's just one of my favorite plants, you know, for all sorts of, 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 um, of healing. And another one I think of is wasia. We call it, um, um, wasia means grandmother in our language. If you speak Latin, it's like gusticum porteri, or in the book, it's osha. Some people call it chuchupate. And this is a, this high elevation plant. It's a lot of work to find it. You have to be careful because at lower elevations, 
there's another plant that grows that looks exactly like it, but um, it's it's a poison hemlock. But you know, poison hemlock starts growing at about five six thousand feet, and you don't start looking for the the osha until about maybe eight or nine thousand feet in elevation. And so you know, if you're at high elevations, you're not going to find the poison hemlock, but you dig up the root of this plant. It's this dark, hairy root, and it has this sort of, of a, like roasted celery or carrot kind of smell. And you can chew on the root directly. You can make a strong tea out of it. It's full of, of flavonoids and kumarins and these act as anti-inflammatories. You can chew on it to get rid of sore throat. It's a naturally, um, these flavonoids are naturally occurring um, antibiotics and um, you can use it both internally and externally. It's just one of those sort of, if you have a, a herbal first aid kit, you know, some people actually carry an herbal first aid kit around Osha should be one of the first things in there because you can use it for just about anything. That's amazing. I, I love all of those examples. And it just astounds me that we have disconnected ourselves so much from nature because nature provides everything that we need, whether it be just food as caloric intake or um, preventative medicine or healing. And I think a lot of people... Um, I mean, I just recently learned this, that a lot of the medicines that we prescribe nowadays uh, came from nature. It's, it's from tree bark or uh, things like that. And so we've just essentially mimicked what nature does. But where do you think that we lost this connection with nature? Like what, what was the catalyst for, so a lot of indigenous people have a kinship with it, but what forced us out of that kinship? Well, you know, up until, you know, almost the, the middle of the last century, you know, the, the 1900s, most people around the world still relied on herbal medicines for their first course of, of action when there was an illness and so on. And it was when we um, allowed and actually encouraged um, commodification of, of medicines. When we started to patent medicines and encourage capitalism to, to um, I guess you would say, you know, sort of a, assume the role of distributing and creating medicines, that's where we went astray because then it became an increasingly, um, I guess you would say, financially encouraging sort of economic system to get into the pharmaceutical industry. And it was at that same time when the US was encouraging these newly forming pharmaceutical companies to start to harvest in South and Central America and Africa and Asia to seek out these, you know, these, what you, you know, you mentioned earlier, these tree marks and plants and roots and so on and leaves to you know, find more and stronger and better medicines, you know, for 
this growing population that was suffering even more illnesses because our we were actually at the same time moving away from these foods that were preventing us from getting you know a lot of these illnesses and these pharmaceutical companies just um, took over more and more of the distribution of medicine and discouraged people from taking herbal medicines, grandmother's medicines and so on. And didn't take long within a couple of generations when we just um, decided as a population that these old ways just weren't working for us anymore. We need to become more dependent on these synthesized pharmaceutical medicines. And that's a very, um, I, I took a very um, short view of all of that, but you know, in the short, that that's how what pretty much what happened, you know, there's a lot more to it than that, a lot more political systems involved and other things like that. Um, fortunately, there's still indigenous peoples in pockets around the world where they kind of act as refugia of these old ways of of using plants for food and medicine. And we can still learn from, from these, these uh, pockets of indigenous peoples um, and hopefully um, keep, them, keep them going somehow so we can rely on their knowledge before we totally wipe it out. Um, but we're quickly moving towards the opposite. And hopefully we can turn that around and yeah. at some point the next generation or two. Yes, I, I hope so as well. And I was wondering, so for our listeners, so you were giving examples of wild rice or OSHA, um, not hemlock, but OSHA. <laughs> and a lot of this comes with knowledge of how to uh, gather these foods. Is there, what, what recommendations do you have for our listeners who are living in cities don't necessarily have access to um, like the wild rice that you described? How can you find healing foods in grocery stores or in your local communities? That's a tough one because <laughs> some of these, these communities are, you know, what we call food deserts. And you can't get access to, you know, a lot of these foods. You know, there's more and more local communities who are supporting and funding uh, farmers markets. You know, not too far where I'm at here. I mean, I'm only, you know, maybe three, four miles south of, of Oakland, especially um, parts of West and East Oakland that are determined to be food deserts. But what's happening, we're seeing local um, community-based organizations who are encouraging farmers markets in some of these areas. On the campus where I teach, the California State University East Bay, a lot of our students are from those, those same communities, you know, these food desert communities and so on. And we actually have a weekly farmers market on campus you know, so that the students can, you know, have access to these, these uh, nutritious foods. Um, so that's just one example. We're, you know, hopefully we will see more of, and we're seeing them already, more 
CSAs, you know, um, these community gardens. And again, you know, we're seeing in Western East Oakland. If you can see them here, then you can see these community gardens anywhere. And they, they pop up in um, empty lots and so on. Sometimes um, we see neighbors actually sharing what they're growing in their back and front yards. And this community supported agriculture is another way for people to not only get access to some of these kinds of, of nutritious foods, but to also participate in growing these foods and collecting these foods. And if people can start with just one seed, I just like to give this example. Let's say you get someone to, to decide, you know what, I'm going to grow a jalapeno plant this year. And just, you know, just grow a plant, you know, get some seeds and grow a jalapeno plant. And then get excited about the fact that they actually raised a plant that produced some jalapenos. And then maybe next time I'm going to grow plants so that I can include with the jalapeno plants that make, I can make salsa from. And then they're growing cilantro and tomatoes, maybe. And then all, you know, just by one seed, and I've actually seen this happen with some of my students, you know, by encouraging them to grow one thing within a couple of years, they're actually having a full grown, you know, full blast garden in their backyard or something like that where they live. Or the, one of my favorite examples is where I've given a student an assignment or a class an assignment to do an ethnobotanical study of a family member's spice pantry. And it's amazing what they, what the students get excited about when they realize that grandma knows a lot about these spices and their history and what they can be used for not just in food, but they actually can be a kind of medicine as well. And then this, it's fun to watch the student get excited about their own connection to those spices and eventually to the, the land where those spices come from and in the entire culture. And then eventually the language that uh, these spices are connected to. And so I think whenever we can get people to connect, not just to getting a hold of these foods, but their own identity connected to these foods, then that just you know um, spreads exponentially to their family and to neighborhoods and entire communities. I love long that. way to answer that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. I love that. Cause we love to have actionable things that we can do. And starting with one seed seems very doable for any of us, even if we haven't gardened or planted much. Um, and there's this misconception that we have to either feed the world or choose healthy food. So it's this either or situation that people argue about. Do you think that we can feed the growing population with regenerative agriculture or reconnecting with our, our um, with nature in this way to really nourish ourselves and the planet? Oh, of course. Right now, our agricultural systems are actually depleting the soils around the world. Um, not just here in North America, where where 
um, USAID and other um, nonprofits and so on who have encouraged Western-based agriculture in South Africa, for example, and in the African continent, um, we're seeing a depletion of soils because these Western-based agricultural systems are so dependent on petrochemicals and herbicides and pesticides in order for the systems to work. And it doesn't take long before monoculture develops in these communities that used to grow very diverse land race land races you know food uh, um, land race based foods in other words foods that were endemic to these these ecosystems and to these cultures and if we when we when we look at systems like in south america we're still seeing especially in places like bolivia um, communities that continue to grow their foods in their ancestral ways. Studies have shown that if those systems were expanded, the, um, the yields would actually equal modern agribusiness and sometimes you know, be higher than it. Examples include like aquaculture, for example, um, or you know, where there's um, waffle gardening, or where there's non-till kind of, of farming. So in other words, all these systems that actually return nutrients to the soils, raise yields and equal and sometimes better modern agribusiness. We just have to, again, like we talked about earlier, um, educate people you know, about how these systems work because you use the correct word. You know, it's a misconception that we need modern systems in order to feed this growing population. When in reality, if we use these other systems to be able to benefit everybody and also the planet. Lastly, we ask every guest to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. The future is up to us. We could decide to continue on the path that we're on now, and it's not going to be a very bright future, or we can listen and pay attention to um, some of our prophecies and choose to not end this world and look for another one. And I, I, I mentioned prophecies because my people, Hopi, a lot of Pueblo folks, Navajo, believe we're in a fourth world because we destroyed the previous ones. And maybe we cannot destroy this one <laughs> and wait around for a fifth world. But it, you know, all the prophecies, you know, foretell what might happen. And every time when you read the prophecies. They suggest, well, we have a choice in what can happen. And so we can choose, you know, our, our future. So it's, it eventually is up to us. I love that. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Salman. We really appreciated talking to you. And we, we're so glad that you took time to chat with us today and share your knowledge with our listeners, because like you were saying, um, we really just need to reconnect people and educate people. And that's what we try to do with Medicine Explained is 
bring all of these ideas and um, this knowledge out to the general public so that we can truly move to a brighter future and um, hopefully, again, prevent a fifth world. (laughs) It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.